Hi everybody, before this podcast begins, I'd like to acknowledge that this is recorded on Wurundjeri country and I pay my respects to those past, present, emerging and those who may be listening today. Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of My Therapist Says I Should Journal. I hope you've had a good week. It's cup weekend here in Melbourne and I've just kind of been spending the long weekend just with my dogs but also getting ready to leave because I fly out to Europe on Thursday night and even though I've been to Europe before, I just feel like this time I'm a lot less prepared. I don't know why it is, but I'm just feeling like I haven't got everything together, even though I've got all of the things I want to bring, but I'm just really worried about getting there and not having everything that I need. And I've been running lists and everything, but I guess I'll just see. Hopefully... I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And luckily I'm starting off in London, so if I do miss anything, I can always just get it over there. But I'm excited for my Europe trip because I'm going with my sister and I'm also going to be doing a little travel series whilst we're over there because I'm terrible at writing a journal when I'm traveling because I just forget. I always get back to where I'm staying and I'm just too tired to really write. Or I always just forget because I'm always doing stuff. And so I'm kind of glad to be like writing or recording these little snippets, sorry. Because then I can get to look back on it. And also we'll be recording whilst we're at each place that we're at. So we'll be able to like reflect on what we're doing and also give some tips. Because I feel like I always get that it's said that People always have so many questions when you're traveling with a disability. And even I know when I started traveling by myself, I had so many questions on how other disabled people went about it or did it. And so I think those little things that you do end up just telling people can be really helpful. So I'm really excited for our travel series. It'll be weekly for the three weeks that we're away. And then we'll be back to having other guests. But speaking of guests, I've got my first guest today, and it is going to be with my mum. My mum has been a nurse for over 20 years, and she is the mum of four kids, and she's got two dogs and two grand dogs, I should say. My and my sister have a dog that also live at home. But I thought that she would probably be the best first guest, because due to having a disability as a baby there are a lot of things that I don't remember or things that now that I'm older I just have different ways of seeing it so I think I think it'll be really good to interview her and get her views on it and also get her views for other parents of disabled kids because now I'm 23 years old I'm she doesn't really have to do any more parenting but I feel like it would be really good for any other parents that are going through it and also just to get her opinions and reflection on what's happened and over the past 23 years. So welcome my mum. Hi mum. Hi Maya. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, my name's Lucy. I am 49. I am the mum to Maya, Emily, Grace and Jack. I work full-time as a nursing manager, and I live in Whittlesea. Yeah, we live in a nice little property, don't we? Yeah, nine acres just outside of Whittlesea. It's very lovely. 
with our dogs and chickens. Lots of dogs. A few okay. chickens and a guinea pig. Can you name them all? Yeah. There's <laughs> Bonnie, Clyde, Maggie, Benny, the dogs, Sharon, the guinea pig, and oh, now the chickens are going to press me. <laughs> Grace on them. Because I just call them the girls, but I think they're Natalie, Sunny, Bianca. Oh, the last one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The last oh, one. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I feel like we've always had a sunny in there. Yeah, we've had a few sunnies. We've had a few. I feel like sunny number five. Pretty, yeah, mm. sunny number five. I think we are up to. But mm. yeah, so we had lots of eggs, a very noisy guinea pig, and lots of dogs. Lots of dogs. We were equally noisy. Um, I want to have you on because I feel like you will be able to talk about it a lot better than I will having a disabled child and what that was like and the experience because a lot of things I don't really remember because I was a baby and I feel like it would be really beneficial to other parents that have all going or are going through at the moment so can you describe the moment that you thought that something was wrong yes so it's a very long time ago so but it I guess those memories don't fade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were my first child, and I'd had very limited experience with babies before. Fortunately, your dad had had a bit more baby experience, being the youngest of five. So he was a little bit more in tune to what was normal and what wasn't. Your auntie had had a baby three weeks earlier, and there was a lot of the differences between the two what of you. But Angela was a lot bigger. She was a lot more active. Uh, you were uh, unhappy, an unhappy baby. So you weren't, didn't wail and cry, but you just weren't happy. You were, they say you were a bit miserable, uh, a bit grizzly, but you still you slept okay, and there wasn't anything really out of the ordinary. When you were first born, your your feet became puffy after 24 hours which I thought was completely reasonable you've been upside down in my body for nine months so <laughs> why wouldn't your feet be puffy but apparently that is not normal and the n- nurse that was looking after me said no that's not normal and got the doctors right onto it so that was at the mercy and then you spent some time in the special care nursery where they did lots and lots of tests and didn't really find anything so they um let us take you home while they waited for the results of blood tests and chromosomal tests. And we went back and they said, no, there's nothing that we can see that's wrong with her. She's just a small baby. She's just going to be a bit more lethargic than others because you weren't really moving around a lot, a lot mm. but you were still feeding and I was breastfeeding. So you said, we're, you know, feeding okay, but you just seemed a bit grisly. Mm. And then you started losing weight and the maternal and child health nurse was not happy with your weight gain um, and or, or your lack of it. So then we were looking at, you know, why were you not were you not feeding properly? Was it me? Was I not producing enough milk? So we had a lot of lactation consultants involvement. So this is within the first few weeks. And still you weren't really picking up. And I went a couple of visits to the GP who didn't really think that there was anything wrong 
And then you, I got a bit squinty, so we took you back to the GP. And she said, no, there's nothing wrong. And then we said, well, the maternal child health nurse thinks there's something wrong. We think they, she thinks that she's not really moving her legs. But then you moved your legs because you have reflex movement. Mm. <clears throat> so she looked at me like I was a bit crazy. Then, um, so we took you home and went back to the maternal child health nurse the next day because I think we were having daily visits by then because she really wasn't satisfied with what how you were doing and she was really concerned and she was a bit tough on me and there were a few tears because I really didn't know what to do because the GP was saying you were fine the maternal child health nurse said you weren't fine and I wasn't too sure about what was going on but I knew that you weren't putting on weight and that is not okay so I asked her what I should do and she said, I don't know what you should do. And I said, should I take you to the children's hospital? And she says, I can't tell you that. So that wasn't really helpful. And there wasn't a lot of support. I, I rang the GP and I said, maternal and child health nurse has reckon, uh, suggests, well, I think I need to go to the children's. And she said, well, you do what you need to do. And I said, can I get a referral letter? And she said, no. So we went anyway. Yeah, it was not a lot of support mm. around. A maternal child health nurse did her best, but I guess if all the medical teams are saying there's nothing wrong, it's a bit hard. When, mm. But her years, she was a very experienced nurse, so she, she knew that there was something wrong. So then we just lined up in the queue at the children's hospital like everybody else and mm. went to... EED and they fortunately knew something was wrong so they because you were only six weeks old we didn't have to wait we went straight in mm. the nurses are very experienced there so they knew what a sick baby looks like and they didn't know what was wrong but they got the neurology team down and I think the words were we don't know what's wrong but we do know that there's something wrong mm. and then that that stage your dad and your nan were there and they said yes that's what we thought too but I was still in a bit of denial and a bit naive and I'm like what do you mean <laughs> you thought there was something wrong yeah so it was a bit it was a bit surreal I guess yeah. is the feeling it doesn't it's like it's not really happening or not too sure what's going on but they you were admitted and they did lots of tests again and more tests and you were you know your admission was that failure to thrive which I think is really harsh mm. for an, a diagnosis when and to me it feels like a bit of a reflection of my own abilities when you're being told your child's not thriving well it must be me she's breastfed but in reality it's not it had nothing to do with me really no. but it's still it's a really fun. harsh mm title to label I guess to put on a child especially a six weeks old baby it's failure to thrive what does that mean that could be anything yeah Yeah. so I guess it's that term when they don't really know what's going on but for me it feels like a bit of an attack when you were at the children's hospital can you describe what that moment was like when they told you that your child or your newborn baby had a life-changing disability remember what that was like what was going through your head uh that conversation didn't happen for a couple of years so initially 
you had your MRI and they found that you had cysts in your spine or neuroenteric cysts in your spine, which we didn't really know what that meant. And I, because it's so rare, neither did a lot of the doctors. We just knew it wasn't great. Uh, and it needed an operation. So they had to find a surgeon who could do the operation. Um, which Mr. Clug was his name, and he was basically retired, but he had done the operation, performed the operation about 10 years earlier. So they knew he was the only one that had the experience to do it. So you had the operation, and then was see what happens. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was quite confronting. Um, I was okay right up until I saw you in recovery and then I think that the nurse in me understood the enormity of what, what had happened with all the tubes and um, IVs. Mm. This tiny, tiny baby it was just unfathomable to think that this tiny baby's had this massive operation with a cut from you know, basically your whole back. It was just quite confronting. But your dad coped in a different way, so he was a little bit more upset before your operation, and then afterwards he was like, "Okay, you've had the operation; you're going. It's got, everything's going to be fine." Mm. So then we just got on with you getting better and getting you home and going back, trying to get back to normal and seeing how you were. And we didn't know what what the outcome was. No one said that you wouldn't walk. No one said that you'd be paralysed. We weren't told any of that. And then two weeks later, it came back. So we thought you were doing great. And then you got weight again and you'd lost weight. So they did another MRI and they found that the cysts had come back. So they had to drain the cysts again. And just fingers crossed, see what happens. Hopefully it wouldn't come back again. So those are about a month of not knowing what would happen. And then we took you home and just got about with living our life and having a... Um, just having a little baby, I guess. And you then you were really happy. You were a happy little baby. Mm-hmm. It was great. You weren't in any trouble. I stopped breastfeeding because I just really needed to know that you were taking in... The right amount of food and it was all about putting on weight and, you, and feeding so it consumed our life because you still weren't gaining a lot of weight um, you're always little and then after a couple of years once you didn't really hit your milestones so you didn't sit up when you should have you didn't you couldn't sit you couldn't you didn't crawl to your 14 months and sort of I guess no one actually said She's not going to walk. She's not going to reach her milestones. But it was pretty obvious that you weren't. And then at two, it was pretty evident that you weren't going to walk. But we already had a lot of intervention by then. You were going to physiotherapy and occupational therapy three times a week and sort of doing everything that we could to sort of build you up. And we needed like, the special seating and supports for your back. It's just about you know, getting on with it, really. Mm. So they never really sat you down and said, your daughter has a spinal cord injury and this is what? No, never. Wow. 
didn't know that. I thought they were just like, yeah, this is how it is going to be. See you later. No, no one. They, because you're a ba- you were a baby and it's very oncoming, you didn't fit a box. You didn't have spina bifida. You didn't mm-hmm. have cerebral palsy. You didn't have the conditions that were commonly seen at seen with young children. So mm. no one really knew what to prognose. And I guess it, in that, it was 1999, the Royal Children's Hospital didn't even have a paediatric spinal cord service. No, you were, we went, there was no, we went to, we saw a lot of doctors. Mm. Um, she had a lot of different things. What people don't realise about children who have spinal cord injuries is it's not just the spinal cord injury it's yeah. the impact on the growth and every other aspect of your development uh, with an adult they're fully developed they've grown they they have a spinal cord injury and then that's it whereas with a child it impacts every aspect of their development because the muscles and the nerves aren't developing so you don't have the support structures don't develop you don't you'll you know, you develop contractures, you don't feed properly because you're not, your bowels don't work properly, everything. Mm. So in your development, during your development is impacted. Did you have any sports in place during, for that development? Like, so, now we have the NGIS and things like that, but no. did you have anything back then? No, uh, we, no, there were no, there were services, but it took 18 months to get your application approved mm. so if you can imagine a child a young child especially that development 18 months of That's development is a big difference so a lot of the times we just bought the equipment because you needed it then but there was no retrospective payment so it was just a cost that you wear mm. um, because you needed so much more equipment more equipment that you than what you've had now Mm. And you need it changed so, because you grow out of it pretty quickly. Yeah. You and Dad sold your first home, actually. Yes. After finding out that I had a disability. What made you make that decision? We lived in Greensboro at that time and we had a split-level house that was going to be our forever home. It was in a great location, near schools, mm. great suburb. But um, the bedrooms were on one level and the living area was on another level. And it just, we, we knew you were going to be in a wheelchair, so how does a wheelchair get from one level to the other? It would have mm. taken a very long ramp. Mm. So we needed to look at building something that was a bit more suitable. And that's when we moved to King Lake. And what made you decide to make? Um, land, mm. a small town. Definitely wasn't the weather. <laughs> it's quite cold there. <laughs> but I guess it is kind of good because for a young child, you have like, it's a small community. Quite a, it was quite a close community back then. So I guess it kind of was a good decision because... Yeah, we had good supports. Mm. It, was, it was good. It was a bit far away. I think that's the biggest impact. Yeah. I noticed especially as you got older. Mm. But when you were little, um, there were lots of little people in our house. Yeah. Um, it was it was fine. Mm. That kind of goes, speaking of little people, Emily, Grace and Jack were born in quite a short time after me and in quite a busy time too. How did you cope with that? What was it like having you know, multiple newborn babies at home whilst your other daughter's going in and out of hospital? 
So we made a decision to have Emily mm. sooner than what we probably would have if you didn't um, have your disability or you mm. hadn't been unwell because we knew that your journey would be different and that you know, kids, especially with illness or chronic illness or disability, are treated so differently, mm. even though it's not a nice thing to have to accept it is reality uh, and we didn't want you wrapped in cotton wool and we didn't want to be those parents that didn't too scared to let you do anything and the best person to keep give you normality is a sibling mm. it actually took a little while to get pregnant with you so we thought that it would take a little while again it didn't, it didn't twice <laughs> so with emily i think it was only like five months between you so yeah, it was quite a quick 16 yeah the 16 months the 16, between, yeah so it's five months that's five months of when you got pregnant yeah. yeah so that was quite quick and still a bit crazy time but you mm. were you were healthy then and just so people know what's the age difference like how many what's the age difference between all your kids so Em's 22 you're 23 Em's 22 mm. so there's 16 months between you and emily mm. and then you were three when the twins were born yeah. so we had Em, and that was great. Little little girls, mm-hmm. and then we just moved. We'd moved in renting in King Lake while we built our house, and I found out I was pregnant again. It wasn't planned; it was just surprise. Surprise! And then we realized. Then we found out a few weeks after I found out I was pregnant that. It was twins, which was a little bit of a shock because there aren't really any twins in our family. Mm, so no. it was like, wow, okay. I was still getting used to the fact that I was pregnant again and then find out I was tw- having twins. Yeah. So that was a lot, but you just got through it. I'm really lucky that I have a really supportive family. Mm-hmm. So mum and my sisters and my sister-in-law were really supportive and helped a lot and a hands-on dad and you just juggled made it work made it work i don't think i left the house for any other reason than go to your therapy or grocery shopping for a year gosh i did i only went i went to a couple of weddings yeah not with the twins no not with, no yeah. When I was a baby. When you were a baby. Yeah. But well, after I had the twins, I didn't really... I too busy. Too, too busy. Four too, kids. Yeah. And I was in a wheelchair at that time, wasn't I? Just moved in. Yeah, just got a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And I think we did... Council did have, like, respite. Yeah. But they only would give it... I think I was allowed to have an hour and a half a week. And they wouldn't give you an hour and a half block. So I couldn't go shopping. Yeah. I did they come to the house and I think we did it once and she was lovely but it was like not really beneficial because I couldn't do anything I was thinking like all I could do was mm. go for a walk and that's a big decision too having someone else come into your home and yeah I wasn't really comfortable with that and mm. then it wasn't really didn't really add value to our family life so we just didn't bother but mm. we were lucky that um my mum and my sister-in-law learn a lot of your medical needs yeah they so do. they, they could help um look after you if 
Pete and I weren't around. So then you had it. Then you had to do catheters and everything, didn't they? Yeah, peg fees, catheters. Yeah. yeah. So you didn't have to have carers because you had family, which is yeah. good. I guess that's good. And we didn't really need carers if we mm. needed to go out. We you know, we're, we're little little kids. You don't really go out much. No. Too busy with four little children. Do you remember one time at Friends Rock Plaza when the lady yelled at me for running over a foot and I was two? Yeah, yeah. And you turned around and said, she's two years old for God's sakes. Yeah, yeah. People were a little bit ignorant to mm-hmm. what it means being in a wheelchair and a child in a wheelchair. Especially a toddler. Could you yeah. imagine? I don't know why I took you to the shops. I don't know. It must have been crazy. No. <laughs> We have quite a lot of sibling groups in our families. Your sisters have a lot of kids, mm-hmm. and you have four, four. Do you think there's a difference between us, like yeah, me and Jack and Grace and Emily, and then the other sibling groups, because one of them has a disability? If that makes sense. Does that make sense? I'm not too sure. I think. Do you think our relationship's different? There's a bit of an age difference between your cousins and yourselves, mm. but I think you and your siblings are very close, and I think they have a really good understanding of disability and um, what that means, mm. and not judging people by their disability. I think they have a really good understanding. I think your cousins. <clears throat> don't really know any different no either so it's a bit hard to tell because they just know that you're in a wheelchair they don't see you as someone who's disabled they see you as maya so i think, I think it is good though for little kids though when they have someone with a disability in their family because it gets them like jack and grace and emily get them to know that there are different yeah i think any diversity is good yeah and that's what it is i guess with living with a disability is a different type of diversity mm. But, yeah, you. I guess the age difference between you guys is so small as well. Yeah, it's a lot of young adults in the house at the minute. At the moment, it is. <laughs> like you said, that it's always been like a lot of that development period at the one time. So when we were little kids, it was a lot of little kids, and then a lot of teenagers, and now it's a lot of yeah, early twenties stuff. Yeah, going yeah. on in this house, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. A lot of driving out in the middle of the night to pick people up. Yeah. Mm. Well, luckily everyone's got their license now, so it can be shared out yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. Um, what was it like parenting whilst one child in hospital and the others are not? Mm. What was that? It's like a juggling like? act. Mm. They're um, just trying to do your best, I think. Yeah. We had a pretty good system where I would stay during the week and Dad would stay on the weekends mm-hmm. just to balance it a little bit more and share the load um, when you were first diagnosed so this is before we had lots of kids mm-hmm. and dad stayed in the hospital and then for the first night because I was breastfeeding is it go home have a rest she won't need your boobs to nosh mm-hmm. and then I get a phone call at like four o'clock in the morning because your blood pressure dropped and I flew down to the children's because dad doesn't have any medical background mm-hmm. especially back then and mm-hmm. it was all very confronting because alarms were going off so yeah. it was probably the Scary one and only times. time that 
was like, okay, I just need to hang around a bit. Mm-hmm. But as you got older, and you spend quite a lot of time in hospital when you're sick. So then was Emily was just born. Dad spent the week with you, his mm-hmm. paternity leave week. He spent in hospital with you because you got sick. And I stayed with them, and then we just tag teamed after that and just juggled so that the kids all had parents around because they really needed mum and dad there as well because it's quite unsettling to have a child in hospital and we lived quite a distance it was a big drive Mm -hmm. and they spent a lot of time hanging out in hospital too so Jack and Grace learned to walk in the starlight room Mm -hmm. they were very comfortable hanging out at the children's sometimes they didn't really get it was a hospital didn't they when they were little kind of thought it was just their second home thought they were going to school they didn't really see... Yeah, to the corridors. Yeah, they didn't see it as a scary place, which is good, mm-hmm. I guess. They just was part of their growing up, which is different, again, than anybody else, I guess. Other people don't usually grow up in a children's hospital, especially if, they don't, if they're not sick. When we all got a bit older and I continued to stay in hospital, what do you think that effect was on Jack Grace and Emily when I um, had stayed for an extended period of time and been more so in 2009 when I had my spinal fusion. Uh, they were used to you staying in hospital so um, it wasn't a big enormity for them mm-hmm. but it was a pretty unsettling time. They spent a lot of time coming, they're spending their school holidays. I mean Jack and Grace were only six at the time and Emily was eight. Yeah. And so they spent all their summer holiday coming in and out of the hospital, which is not a great summer holiday. Mm. And then we had the bushfires go through King Lake whilst you were still in hospital. So they had to deal with that, which is pretty horrendous, really, for us, for small children to have to deal with the loss of their friends and the loss of their town mm-hmm. and also having to try and understand that their big sister is going into hospital, is having this big surgery. And And also being, I know our family were really helpful at that time, but also having to be careful by relatives, I guess. Yeah. Mum and dad need to be home with their elder sister, I guess that could be tough. They they spent a lot of time with Nan Mm. and but... I guess it's good to have good support networks. Yeah, really needed that family support. to. Mm. We couldn't have done it otherwise. No. Could you imagine? His dad was still working as well, so he would go to work. uh, And the kids would stay with Nan or their aunties or come into hospital. Mm. A lot of organisation needed to happen, I guess. A lot of juggling. Mm. So a lot of people helping out, which... You know, my sisters would make dinners and yeah, yeah just help out. Generally. They were really helpful, weren't they? Yeah, they were great. Yeah. When I started school, or when I was at the age of going to school, did that bring up anything else? Any other kind of challenges that you needed to think of? Well... Making that decision of sending me to school, especially a mainstream, well, a, a mainstream school, I guess. Well, that was never going to a mainstream school was never not an option. It wasn't yeah. really anywhere else you could go. Mm. Um, it's, it starts prior to actually going to school, so it's, it mm. starts at kinder, mm. and you'd had 
early intervention since you know you were very very little yeah. and they work uh, at very hard at getting kids ready to go to and what kind kinder. of things happen at early intervention so you did your physio and your ot and you had teachers as well just it was a very broad early intervention so there were a lot of kids with a lot of different disabilities mm. And it was Calparin, was it? Calparin in Greensboro, and they were fantastic. So, you know, they had hydrotherapy and they would focus on, you know, your physical needs, but they also dealt with the social aspect of it as well. Now it's run by Melbourne City Mission. Is it? Yeah. There you go. Um, So you... They work really hard and work with the kinders as well. Mm. So for you, it was making sure that you had the... um, Environment, yeah. Set so you could work. Um, and did I even go to like a? I went to like a pre-school. Like I went yeah. to like a um, a school that was made for people with disabilities to help them get transition into school, like a, like a transitions program. Didn't yeah, like, you did a transition program. So that was at a. It's at a primary school. Yeah. But you just to get you used to being around primary school and the. But at times, hours, I guess. The hour, and just the noise and the activity and the amount of kids and just all that type of... Did I struggle with that or did no, I thrive? you were fine. That was never your issue, but like I said, you're in a group with lots of kids with, lot, with, kids with lots of other disabilities, so they was one of those one-size-had-to-fit-all type of experiences. Mm-hmm. But it was fine. And they, you know, you went there and got you ready for kin for kinder as well mm. and school so you did that at the same time as going to kinder mm. and then you had a then they trained aides at kinder they identified some people while you're at kinder so one of the mums from kinder who was looking for a work so and then feelers out to the primary school and you had a really good primary school principal who had an understanding of disability and was a foster parent to a child with autism so was really comfortable working in that space which is not always the case mm. as we have since experienced yeah. and was really accommodating and um, positive mm-hmm. and then identified another parent who or past parent who he thought would be a good fit yeah, and then we spent some time, and they trained, and I trained them into, and I had to do all the training, which is different now. Yeah, they have carers that come in; it's a lot more formal. Formal, whereas twenty years ago, nearly twenty years ago, it really was just me doing the training, um, and telling and showing them what to do. Mm-hmm. Probably lucky I was a nurse. Um, what was that like? Deciding because at that time you were just doing everything yourself, really. Yeah. Really coming to school to do my toileting and everything like that. What was that like when you made that decision to kind of put that care into someone else? Um, I, that responsibility. Yeah, I, it wasn't really a decision. It was just what happened. I mm. think I just was never going to be able to. Um, be able to come up to the school as often as what you needed and to have someone around and I didn't you didn't want me there that's not healthy to no. feed the mum that is I was there a lot anyway but to be that mum I, yeah. I, that wasn't a healthy relationship no. 
for us I don't I didn't think and I thought you needed more than your mum Mm -hmm. to help you Mm because other kids didn't have their mum all the time at school Uh, so it was and had lots of other kids to look after and I also worked so it was really not a decision that I had to juggle with it was just something that I needed to do Mm. so it's even though were you you anxious about that decision Mm, not really because you had a really good voice on you even when you were little Mm -hmm. and that I was really comfortable with the teachers and I worked only three days a week then and mostly on the weekend so I was generally around if I needed to be around but I just wasn't at school with you I wouldn't have liked if you were at school no could you imagine we would have I would have told you where to go on the first day it wasn't wouldn't have been healthy at all and you would have not had you wouldn't have been able to grow in and found your own voice if you've got me sitting there being that voice for you so Mm. and it's as a mum it's hard to not just speak for you yeah so it takes a lot of effort to not so not being there is scary as it what it was for me to have to do it's what wasn't right yeah and the other kids needed to know that I was there for them too yeah otherwise what was the point of having these other children I guess you've been my biggest advocate when I couldn't advocate for myself in knowing what's right or what should happen or how I should be treated. How did you cope with needing to have those tough decisions with other people and other services? Um, I didn't find them very tough, even though I really don't like confrontation and I don't like generally having... Um, I find that very challenging to have those mm-hmm. conversations generally. If, but I think as your mum, you get your mum armour on mm-hmm. and it wasn't a challenging conversation. It was just what I needed to do to make sure that you were given the best that I could see that you needed and be treated better. And if those meant having conversations that were a little bit harder to have then that's fine I whatever I don't care you've had to I don't mind about how other people feel mm-hmm. they need to understand what your needs are you've had to do a few of them though are there any that really stick out uh yeah one in particular was before you had your spinal operation and mm-hmm. it wasn't a very good setup at the children's hospital back then it was a very very long time ago and they didn't have the Programs that, that that they have now that they have now. It's a much better system that they have in place. So you, because you didn't fit in a box, you had to see lots of different doctors at different times, and then those doctors didn't speak to each other. Yeah. So your you were in a lot of, lot of pain, and your back was getting worse, and you had quite a severe scoliosis. So we would see. A doctor in the orthopedic department, probably a registrar, who would call you the wrong name, mm-hmm. Maya, Maya, which is really frustrating, and then say call you that you call you or misdiagnose you 
mm. even though your diagnosis is there, would say, oh, so you have spina bifida? And you'd have to say, no, she doesn't. She has a spinal cord injury. She, and he'd be like, oh, okay. And then he would look at oh, okay, look at your x-ray, which you had to have every three months, and go, okay, it doesn't look too different to the last one. Mm. See you in three months. And then we go back three months later. They see a different doctor or your consultant. They do the same thing, may get your name right, that time but then may look at the x-ray and say okay it doesn't look that different to the last time come back in three months and this happened for a few years and you were getting sicker and sicker and your breathing wasn't very good and you were in hospital because of your like getting multiple chest infections especially at winter you were doing horse riding lessons but you're you couldn't even tolerate the weight of a helmet on your head because it was so painful and this went on for a few years so in the end one doctor doctors weren't really talking to each other we found out that there was a program that they or a clinic that they had set up for children with neuromuscular conditions and you you ticked all the boxes to be able to see the doc all your doctors went to that clinic and except for one doctor a neurologist and you had to be seen by a neurologist so they wouldn't let you see go to that clinic and I by then I just had enough mm. and I didn't know what else to do so we ended up having to go to the patient advocate and say this isn't good enough you're in a lot of pain the doctors aren't making a decision about what to do they're mm. not talking to each other I just want them to talk to each other and that was organized by a social worker wasn't it because I remember we had the social worker there they brought the patient advocate as they were called back then brought in the social worker and then they had a, the doctors finally spoke to each other mm. and I had to make it clear that I didn't want you to have surgery if that wasn't the best decision and mm-hmm. what was but that I wanted the doctors to speak to each other and to have a consensus about what they needed to do and have a plan mm-hmm. and in the end the orthopedic surgeon took your x-rays to germany and showed them and they said no you need to operate so it took having those really challenging conversations with the doctors international body (laughs) and to get some traction and if they come back and said no we need to continue to monitor for the next two years Mm. and you know everything we're doing everything that we need to do then that's fine but that wasn't happening so what was the delay why were they wanting to wait for so long once you have the operation you don't really grow much more because they fuse your spine Mm. but at that point they you know your breathing wasn't great you needed a BiPAP machine you're in a lot of pain so you have to juggle your quality of life Mm. and what you know needed to happen and they needed and they really it was a really tough it was just a tough conversation to have with doctors and yeah led to have you having massive surgery Mm. which you don't know the out you didn't know it was pretty confronting operation to have and you needed to have it a few times so yeah Mm. you're a parent and you also did the caregiving role how did you balance that do you think I know you kind of touched on it briefly 
it, um, for when I went to school. But in general, how do you think that you balance that? Just, I don't know any different. Yeah. So I think that's you're my first child. So I just did what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And try to give you the skills so that you can advocate for yourself mm. and um, feel like you're empower- empowered to speak up for yourself but then always be around available if you need me so yeah. I don't know how well I did do I think it you did well. I think you did well. it's, it's really no different to, it's hard too yeah, it's no different to being mm. a parent to a child without a chronic medical illness or but what I need to do is a bit different but Maya and Emily and Jack have needs as well they're just different yours are just more obvious and more sort of tangible I guess yeah Grace and Maya Jack yeah um when I got older and I kind of had some more questions about my disability and other things or how society viewed people with disabilities how did you answer those tough questions I don't know whether you actually asked me mm. those tough questions it was just more of a conversation that we would always have yeah, in general I don't really remember a time when we like sitting down and be like Maya this you know Maya this is what you have that never really happened it was just always no I think we just that we, it... we don't know what you could do we didn't know what you could do so why would we make assumptions about what you could do we just always thought you could do whatever you wanted you might just need to do it differently yeah. and um, being in a chair is just one aspect of you as a person and it's not the whole yeah. so I guess we just didn't see you any differently to the other three kids so I didn't feel I needed to sit you down if I sat you down and said "Mate, you're never going to walk again that would have a really big mental impact on what you think that you could do mm-hmm. whereas if you not that I'm expecting you to get up and try and walk because clearly <laughs> no, you know you can't in 23 years that's not going to happen but that doesn't mean you can't try to do things, things other things and you've traveled and you've yeah. Given racing a go, when you've given basketball a go, you just yeah. give you give it a go. I guess that's kind of bring the find, mentality. You find the opportunities that you can try. Why would we take you to an able-bodied basketball game and say yeah. off you go and play? We'd look for a wheelchair basketball game that you yeah. can participate in. So I never, yeah. I never sat you down and had those conversations because it was pretty obvious what you needed and you you're not silly you you could see that there are areas of your life that are different to your brothers and sisters what about when i had frustrations with that how did you kind of manage that you know when i was being treated treated differently at school or getting to an age where i was getting frustrated about having to have aids at school and how did you kind of manage that you think your aids stopped when you were in high school which was yeah helpful we found a high school that had nursing stuff because that's what you need by the time you got to high school you didn't really need an aid mm. you didn't need when you were little you did because your feeding yeah. was so bad you had um, peg feeds you had a lot more medical intervention mm-hmm. when you were getting older it was more your transfers and your hygiene like catheters mm-hmm. that you needed. you don't need someone to stand there you didn't have issues with your ability to work in the classroom yeah so it was just more you needed a nurse. 
Mm-hmm. So we found a school that had a nurse and I found a school that had the accessibilities that you needed. Mm. Um, and I think that's where you could then move away from having a carer. Mm-hmm. I think as you got older, the mental health aspect of it became more prominent. Yeah. And you were at a school that had a big wellbeing department that recognised that and stepped in before mm. I recognised it, which was good. Yeah, I remember. I don't even remember what happened, but I just remember being 16 and in high school and having an email from a um, psych- school psychologist Yeah, saying, we've got a referral. I don't even remember how they got the referral, but I think it was good timing because I remember around that time too is when I was telling you that I was frustrated that people, you know, I had a spinal cord injury, which is an injury, mm. but people kind of just see the wheelchair and automatically treated you differently yeah. I was at a school that I was the only person in a wheelchair at that school at the time so I feel like it was good timing because all of that was kind of coming to the forefront and I guess that that also comes with age too I don't think it was because anything had happened I think it was just that I was at an age where you come to realize things and I was able to vocalize it and think about it more I think as you get older the, I mean there's teenage hormones mm-hmm. for a start that play havoc and there's mm. also the increased insight into differences and mm. that, and kids are cruel as well. Yeah. So you, it's really challenging to even your friends. You know, they have to learn how to accept somebody as well, and it's that was a bit of a difficult thing, wasn't it? Yeah, in high school. High school is not easy for anyone. I mean, no. High school is not easy for any child. So if you've got a difference, mm-hmm. um, it's well, it's it makes it even more so. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like you and Dad have all been, and Emily and Grace and Jack, everyone's been supportive through that. Um, and here you have been in supportive in making sure that I was able to, and have been able to experience everything that I've wanted to do. Even if some people have questions about that and if people have kind of questioned you about being able to, as in quotation marks, let me do do that. Like when I went backpacking overseas, I know you had some people kind of tell you, oh, why, why did you let her do that or how could you let her do that? What, what do you think is your reason behind that or how do you kind of manage that if someone's kind of... I just laugh at them because I think they clear that just shows that they don't know you mm-hmm. um, if they yeah. have those questions it's not a matter of dad and I letting you um, <laughs> it's about giving you the confidence to do it and what they don't understand is that you you're not silly and you didn't just jump on a plane and go overseas. You did a lot of research mm-hmm. and there was a lot of preparation. Yeah. And I'd lived at a home by that. It's not like I was coming from yeah. living at home and then going on a, you know, being independent all of a sudden. I, you know, I'd gone away with an ex boyfriend. I'd lived out of home, you know. I had had those mini bits of independence yeah. before deciding to backpack. But even if. Even then, I think if you and Dad had said, no, I wouldn't have listened to you, really. Well, that's right. I would have gone anyway, and then I probably just wouldn't have told you, which would have been worse. I just think we didn't... I just didn't see the point in telling you no. It's not my place to tell you no. It's my place is to be there if something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. So Dad and I were always prepared to jump on a plane if you'd rung up and said, come now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we also knew where your supports were. We knew you had family overseas. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you and you have the resources and the skills to advocate for yourself. So it's just a matter of accepting that, trusting that you know what you're doing. Yeah. Even sometimes you might not think that you know what you're doing and just we are not the people to tell you no we didn't raise you and give you opportunities to try different things to then go oh sorry but you can't do that Mm. that's That's that wasn't in our vocabulary I don't think it was something that we subscribed to Mm. in your career you're a nurse and now you're a the manager of the nursing workforce at the Children's Hospital. How is that? How has that difference been from being an ex-parent of the Royal Children's Hospital to now being an uh, employee um, in a management position? And that's weird, isn't it? Yeah. But I didn't go there because uh, you went there. <laughs> um, I, I went there for my own reasons yeah. that had nothing to do with you yeah. um, and your condition. It was just... Yeah. You know, I wanted to see what paediatric care was like, I guess, mm-hmm. even though I'd done a lot of paediatric care on you. That's mm-hmm. different. Um, and, yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit weird, isn't it, that you mm. know, two of your sisters work there? I guess it's just a big hospital. So. I know everyone, everyone in the family <coughs> works there but not me. No. The one person who spent, it was a patient. That's, yeah, but it's... funny. It is different, but I think I... I mean... I have an opportunity, I have an understanding of what it's like to be that parent, I guess, and I can bring that, not in my current role, because I'm not clinically nursing, but... But you do hear a lot about what's going on. Yeah, I have an opportunity to be involved in changes that are positive within the hospital. It's funny when they invite you to, like, PD days, and they're doing it on spinal cord injuries, it can be a bit funny. Yeah, I guess that's just like... Anything, really. Anything, really, that you have a life experience with, mm-hmm. you can bring that with you to your work. But it isn't... I guess my experience as a mum is different to my experience as a nurse, but I'm just lucky that I had that training, mm. that nursing training, because a lot of your needs were very clinical. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Comparing the differences to my early childhood to who, where I am at now, are there any key takeaways? Do you think what's the difference? Between, or the, the transition or the growth of myself in general? Uh, you're, well, you've always been very... Not opinionated. <laughs> you <laughs> can say opinionated. No, you've already had a, you've had a very strong sense of yourself and what you want to do and you've you've always had a very been very perceptive mm-hmm. so you, that's been very obvious since you were very little even just who you sort of engage with if you I think you could tell that even when you were in hospital if you didn't like the doctor or the nurse or you didn't get a good vibe from them you wouldn't engage with them <laughs> that's just your own mechanism isn't it really yeah. but it wasn't you being I think you were too little you couldn't be nasty it was just 
if they weren't giving you what you wanted, then you wouldn't really engage with them. I guess that's just un, under trusting that a child has a good instinct. Yeah, I think is probably one of the key takeaways, and trusting your own instinct. And if you have to be a mama bear, that's okay. That's within your right to be a mama bear, and don't mm-hmm. ever apologise. Yeah, but um, definitely, I think. Don't get hung up about the small things. Look mm. at the big picture mm. and just see where that fits. Mm-hmm. But, you know, trust the child. Mm. And what do you think, now that I'm, I'm an adult and now I'm kind of having those conversations of advocacy myself, what do you think about that? I think that's great. That's what we, that's what we trained you for. Yeah. <laughs> But that's what we want to do. Like, I don't, I don't want to be that person who still has to come into the hospital with you to do your doctor's appointments. Because I'm no, you don't come. I don't come. Only if there's a really, really big one. But, but I don't need to come because no. you know the questions that you need to ask. You mm-hmm. know what you need. Um, if I need to be around, I'm, a, I'm there for you. Then that's how it should be for any family member. And yes. I think treating your health. So you have a health, you have additional healthcare needs. You have that ha, that's not going to change. You mm-hmm. have considerations that you need to do. You do have to work really hard at keeping yourself well, mm-hmm. like everybody else. You go to rehab, you go to the gym, mm-hmm. you look after your mental health, mm-hmm. you look after your physical well-being, and I think that's just more obvious with somebody who has a disability or has you know medical additional medical needs, and you're. You have more than a disability. You also have a restrictive lung disease, so mm-hmm. you have to be really careful about being staying well. Mm-hmm. And I think ensuring that you understand that is probably my main priority. And knowing that you know what you need to do to stay well, because it's not about sitting in a chair no. and about getting from A to B. It's about what you need to do to be well and yeah. every aspect of your life. Yeah. If you had to give advice to a current parent that has a disabled child now that you're kind of at the end of it, or I mean, parenting never ends, but you know you don't have, really have a child anymore, now you've got a young adult, um, what would that be from having kind of gone through it? What would the advice that you'd give to someone that's got a young, young child? If it doesn't feel that? right, it's okay to say no. Because mm. there were lots of situations where you, you, know, you had tests and things weren't didn't feel right and still continued and then something didn't happen the way you wanted to and you look back and you go I wish I'd said no I wish I'd said no that's okay you don't do that anymore and I think be that being that voice for your child is absolutely okay and don't apologize for it and if you need something ask yeah definitely and what about for the child like in the apart from like the healthcare side of it you know supporting a child through that do you think any advice on that no just you're the mum be the mum and what you need to do will come with that thank you so much for coming on mum I thought that conversation went really well I actually learned some things that I didn't know about I didn't know that my parents didn't get told that I had a spinal cord injury and that I wouldn't be able to walk till a couple of years later so that's kind of a new thing for me but 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. The next few episodes will be a travel series because I'm actually recording this from a hotel in London. I'm here traveling with my sister for the next month. So we'll be having a few episodes reflecting on our trip and we've already got some few stories to tell. But please give me a follow on my Instagram, d.may with three underscores, and see you next week. Thank you.